Grab a seat. And let's start class. Let's start class. Morning. We're going to open in prayer. If I get the people in the back. There we go. There we go. I love I love fellowshipping, but stop. <laughs> Did I just say that? Remember I said that, James. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. A blessing that we have is we can corporately open up the Word and discuss various things. Father, I know there's uh, much turmoil in the world today. Uh, and my heart's at, at peace knowing that you're a God who is in control. And as we look at that this morning, uh, we want to be more and more confident of what you're doing, how you're interacting, how, how you're allowing your plan to, f- to flow throughout history, Father. Again, as we uh, meet together today, we want to glorify your Son. We want to lift, lift, up, lift up his name in this community. We want to grow in Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been spending, I think, eight classes on the will of man. Uh, within that, incorporated in that, it has to do with God and the will of God and will of Satan. We've talked about that a little bit. And I want to talk this morning, um, which is going to be kind of hard because the first remarks I'm going to have, have you, there's no, we're not going to Scripture per se, but I want you to think about God's plan. And that's my orientation this morning. I want to talk about God's plan. I think one of the things we, we started out on, talking about the sovereignty of God, and so I'm going to make some implications and some points off of the sovereignty of God. And then we're going to go through some other points of it and verify it through Scripture. So it's going to take some time to get through that. But I do want to bring up this this morning. In this hour, not the next hour necessarily, um, there's going to be a lot of people that are saying prophecies being fulfilled today because of such and such events that are going on. Um, I don't think we're in a prophetic age. Uh, we're not dealing with the nation of Israel and the prophecies surrounding that and all the prophecies that deal with the end time have to do uh, with God's finishing his uh, plan with the nation of Israel. So I don't think we're in that, but I think things will align um, for the end times. So if, as we look at things, let's see, we got a plague in China, right? We've got discord and disharmony in the Middle East, which we've always had, but now it seems to be escalating, because I don't know if you know this. Our president's being, trying to be impeached, and Netanyahu is being charged with, as Prime Minister of Israel, being pro- charged with corruption. Uh, you, you've got uh, fires in Australia, right, that are always in the news. You've got uh, multiple homicides now every day, uh, almost everywhere. Uh, and if you look at it, there's t- total discord around the world. Uh, we can go on and on ad nauseum. Uh, you know, when you talk of Philippines, I don't know if you guys know this, the eruption of the volcano there. Uh, there's a guy that uh, does a ministry that I watch often, and he is in the Philippines, and he's given updates of what's going on there. But the Philippines, believe it or not, is one of the few countries that are very pro-American and pro-Israel. So, you know, and they're, they've got environmental concerns and earthquakes, uh, earthquakes in Puerto Rico and in Indonesia. There's, so one of the things we'll see when we get Matthew 24, these are the signs of the end times. But, but we're not in the end times. We're in the end of the end times. But these are just accumulating things to make us God conscious, which opens up a great conversation if you're having with somebody. What are you going to do if you die? <laughs> Where are you going to go? 
so just kind of look at these things and know that God is in control because we're talking this morning about the sovereignty of God. And one of the things that we that comes off of that, if God is sovereign, and we, we I'm using it as a kind of a third-class conditional sentence, but I always mean it first-class because God is sovereign. But if God is sovereign, he then is controlling the universe and controlling the things within the universe. Yet his sovereignty, and we said this over and over again, can be challenged by man's will or Satan's will. So if God is also sovereign, he must have a plan that coincides with his sovereignty. And that's what we're going to look at is... uh, in that plan, it requires sovereign choice of a sovereign God who's controlling his universe, who has a right to that sovereign plan, and therefore God can make choices. And we're going to look at some of those things as we discuss it, how God has chosen certain things to do certain things and allow certain things. Uh, for instance, we talked about Satan's rule. And I said this, I think, last week. We're going to have a few times where classes will overlap and repeat each other because I think it's important to get it all together. But if we say Satan has a rule over the earth, we also know it's limited in scope and time. Satan can only do certain things that God allows, and we know his time is very limited now. It's, it's a short amount of time left to do whatever he needs to do. Man's rule, man's rule is in submission to God, which is also a time-oriented uh, thing. In other words, we're limited by time. Uh, if a man lives 75 years, that's his limitation to rule whatever he has um, in submission to God. And I think one of the things I, I also see in society as signs of the times is the breakdown of the family. It's it's getting worse. I don't know if you know that. The things in my generation that were that when I first started life were off limits are today is public information kind of thing. So it's it's just an interesting conundrum what's going on. Um, but when we talk about Satan and man, they both tend to go be outside of their sphere of authority. When they do, that's when God has to step in. Uh, Satan, for instance, wants to be God, and so often, so does man. Man deifies himself often many times. Uh, and so when we talk about that, God does limit Satan and man's power and effectiveness of their will. They're free to challenge God's will. They're free to... Say, I will, like Satan did in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. They can say, I will, and I don't know how many times man has said, I will. They can resist God. Um, and, and it seems like sometimes God, for the moment, doesn't do anything. But God has a uh, paradigm, a, a boundary, I guess is the best way to see it. Say, there's a boundary that God has in which, his, which these wills function. And he is supreme ruler over the universe. So we've got to look at his overall plan, regardless of what's happening in the minutia of things. Kind of get what I'm saying? So that's what we're going to look at. So one of the implications of God's sovereign, uh, of a sovereign God, so if you take a notes, this is what we're going to talk about first. We're going to say, what logically flows from one supreme person of the universe? What can logically flow from a sovereign God? What comes out of that? When we say God is sovereign, what are we talking about? And one of the things we can absolutely say, God is in absolute control. When things are seem absolutely out of control from a human perspective, God is in control. He hasn't lost control. God is not surprised by what man will do and can do. Um, Yet he does 
have total control of what's going on. Uh, just for conversation, think of the time that Jesus was born in. If you were to step back in time and say, I'm going to go live in the you know, 1 AD or 10 BC, or that time frame, and you would think, in, if you were in the Middle East, times were horrible. What were you going to do? God's, a, God's not in control. God can't do anything with what's going on. Rome was uh, a thug nation, yet they had a, a really good uh, laws, but they were very thuggish. Uh, and the Pharisees had come to power, and they, they had issues that we'll deal with in the second hour a little bit. Um, but you would think God's not in control, yet in the what? The fullness of time, Christ came forth from a woman. So God gets the proper time. So God will find, again, the proper time to step in to, to historical events and carry out his ultimate plan. And what we have is God is in control. He can, cha- he can take the chaos of this world and use it for his good. Same with Satan kind of thing. Uh, and, he is, and therefore, God allows also, because we talk about the logical flow of, the, of a supreme person ruling the universe, he's in absolute control. But he also, and we've said this over and over again, he allows his will to be challenged but I want you to remember, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a successful challenge. So if you want to, over, if Satan wants to override God's rule and will, he can, he can say so, but he's not going to win. For instance, I think one of the things, main things he says, he wants to be uh, take his exalt himself over the mighty God. He wants to be the mighty God. How's that working out for him? He's not. He's tried it and tried it and tried it, and he's not. He tried it with the temptation of Christ. How did that work out? Because we spent time in Matthew 4 months ago, and it didn't work out for him. Secondly, as a supreme person of the universe, he has the right to a plan. And therefore, if he has a right to plan and has a right to divulge that plan and tell us what we need to, when we go into the Word of God, we should be seeking to study the very will, of, uh, will and plan of God. When you study the Word of God, do you learn what the plan of God is when you study the Word of God. And that's one of the things, what's your objective? For instance, some of you may be reading through the Bible this year or every year, and that's fine, but what's your objective? Just to read through it, just to get some information, to get it done? Uh, some of us read like it's a novel. Okay, we got the end of the story, we're good, we're moving on. But look for God's plan. Look how God is intervening many times within history. And today, even though... No revelation is given, even though some people swear they heard from God. They have not heard from God. But God's revelation is not being, there's not more coming, but God is still revealing himself in history. Look around. See how it works out. Um, I think a couple of years ago when Donald Trump pronounced Jerusalem the capital of Israel, um, he was just saying what God said. You know, so that's a, that is a... Uh, uh, a revelation of who God's doing and how God's working. Thirdly, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, he has sovereign choices, and God has chosen uh, to allow, God has made choices that are in, that allows Satan and man to interact with those choices. Uh, that is, um, in other words, look through when you study the Bible, what has God said yes to and no to? What has God allowed or not allowed? And those are the things you do when you do Bible study. Fourthly, God's planning and, and choosing is given to us by revelations of God or God's expression of his plan. What did God choose? I'm going to look at some of these, so I'm just kind of giving you some ideas that we're going to expand on as we go through this and go actually go into the Word of God. But, but um, 
And one of the things people do when they study the Bible, and should, how do I fit into the plan of God? What does God want for me? What is God's plan for me? Uh, are we just observers? Are we just watching it happen? Or are we involved in it? Uh, um, and the question, the, the question is, yes, we're involved in it, but can we consult with God? For instance, God talks with Job at the end of Job and says, where were you when I was creating the world? So we're not, we're not consultants with God. Uh, we're, we're observers, but we're part of his plan. Uh, what does God therefore want from us then? What does God want from us? And I think this is where, where, where sometimes classes intersect. We're talking about Matthew chapter 5. We're talking about the Sermon on the Mount in the second class. In the second class, basically, what Jesus is doing, he's telling you, as the sovereign God, how you interact with his plan. And one of the things is, do you obey me? How do you obey me? And some of the what we've seen, and we will talk about in the second class, the Pharisees, the Pharisees was a mechanical obedience. Right? You know people that do mechanical obedience. We just do it to do it. Why are you doing it? Just doing it. Um, to show, or to show how good I am kind of thing. Uh, what God wants is volitional obedience. God wants us to choose to obey him. And we do have the options. We have options as humans to obey or rebel. And I think many times in the minutia of life, people rebel thinking they're doing God's will. What I mean is they have the externals, the pharisaical look. They have the externals. They do, do, do. But their heart's not really in it, but they did get it done. It's like a checklist. Anybody have rights list to get things done? I do. And I mechanically say, okay, I got that done, that, that done. Uh, yeah, my heart may be in it, but I want to get it done. I want everything on my to-do list to be my to-done list. Right? Um, but that's how we live our spiritual lives sometimes. You know, I went to church once, I read, the, read a scripture for the day, and it's very mechanical, but God wants uh, a contrite heart, right? Uh, what, Psalm 51, 17? Um, and therefore, I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, if you continue to rebel, whether believer or unbeliever, you're on the clock. God is a long-suffering God, but for how long? before he either disciplines or takes you home. Uh, and and I love the idea that God is long-suffering because I have issues too. And God has dealt with me and prayerfully has dealt with you. And uh, But if you continue as a rebel, I'm going to tell you this biblically, it's not going to end well. So, uh, and that's... And we're not to... We're, I think we're jumping into Matthew 7 at that point. Don't judge others with that. Don't look at other people's lives and see what's going on in their lives and say, okay, they must be under discipline because they're rebellious to God's word. Um, That's a possibility, but I stay away from that. I'm more concerned about what God's doing with me, as you should be, not me, yourselves, (laughs) kind of thing. Uh, When we cooperate with God in choosing to obey his plan, we could see and experience the plan of God and his blessings for us in life. So it's either rolling with the God's plan and doing what God has asked us to do or, or, or in rebellion. Whether believer or unbeliever can be in that rebellious place. Uh, so when we talk about the whole essence of the Christian life, it's to, it's to observe God's plan, to cooperate with God's plan, and the question is, why should we do that? Well, because His plan provides absolute good for us. God wants His good for us. Uh, and I think that's an interesting thing because when we talk about uh, various things, uh, such as 
working in, uh, God working in my life, well, what are you doing to align with what God has already clearly revealed in His Word? And these are the things we're going to explore in a few minutes. Um, uh, so when we talk about God creating man, God also, therefore, if He's created us, He knows what we're like. Uh, so when we go to God in prayer, or we spend time with God, it's not a surprise, the makeup of who we are, and um, we should want to, I think the first thing we should be doing is wanting to line up with God's plan uh, for what he wants us to do, because it's the best for our good, but most of us kind of say, you know, if, if I do this, God will bless me, and you're coming up with things like whatever, uh, the mechanical side, and I think we need to be in God's word, understanding what God's plan is, because it's his absolute good for me. So when we look at what is God's plan, for for instance, for a believer, how do we do those things, how do we look at that? First of all, there's two aspects of God's plan. So we're going to talk about the aspects of God's plan. First of all, it is for all. God's plan is for all in time and history. So if we look through the Bible and we're going through God's plan, we can see nations that are involved, nations he's taken down, people groups, uh, various things that are going on. Uh, he'll give instructions to the nation of Israel. Will they obey those instructions? Do they disobey those instructions? One of the things they said when they come into the promised land is to do what? Eradicate people. And you, the first thing everybody will say, God's a bloody God. No God would do that. Oh, yes, he can because he's what? We're going back to God is sovereign. And God is what? Omniscient. He knows everything that's going to happen. So if he says, wipe out the Canaanites, he knows that they're bad for the environment. God is pro-environment, <laughs> you know. He is, he's worried about a, a breakdown in, in climate. And he says, the climate is, if the Canaanites rule, that will be a fungus to my nation. And they didn't do it. Um, he told kings that they couldn't do certain things, and they did it, and they were punished. Saul was told specifically not to act like a priest, not to do the priesthood. Saul goes in and does the priesthood, and he's punished. Okay, So first of all, it's for all. God's plan is for all in both time and history. Secondly, it's personal. It's for you. God's plan, so we've got to look at the duality that's going on. Um, and then on top of it, as we ex- uh, unfold some of these aspects, so let's look at the um, bar- uh, barriers that God uses for his plan. First of all, God's plan is always going to be in perfect harmony with his character. So in order to understand God's plan, you must understand who God is. Uh, How many of us have ever gone through a good theology proper? Anybody know what that is? Theology proper, study of the Godhead. Not just the Father, not just the Son, not just the Spirit, but all the attributes that all three have. And if you understand who God is, that helps grasp who he is, and what's going on, because he's not going to go against his character. So when God gives a a, a, a rule or a, a law or whatever he gives and unfolds certain things, he's not going to go against that. Uh, for instance, because of who God is, there's certain things in his plans he cannot do. So let's look at some of these. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2.13. And now we're going to actually go to Scripture. And we're going to look at some of these. So first things we say, there's certain things God cannot do. 2 Timothy 2.13. So when you see things happening, and you're looking through the lens of Scripture, and you say, here's God's character. Can God do this? Or cannot God not do this kind of thing? 
So we're in 2 Timothy 2.13. We're going to break into a section here, but the point is in 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So therefore, the one thing that this, the first thing we're looking at is God can't go against his character. So therefore, it requires you to understand what the character of God is like. Somebody once asked, and it's I don't know how many times it's been asked, can God make a rock too big he can't move? That's called uh, an argument from what, absurdum, right? That's an absurd argument. That's stupid. Okay, but we do know there's God's character, and he can't go against that. For instance, everybody will emphasize today God is love. Is that true? Oh my goodness, if you don't know that now, where are you at? Where have you been? Hiding under a rock? God is love. We know that. But God's love doesn't supersede or override his justice. They've got to work in harmony. So God says there's certain things that's required. So to today, people that are universalists that think God saves all men for all reasons, and it doesn't matter who you are, because God loves, has failed to understand God is what? Just. And sin demands a, a, a judgment. So they override the sin, because God lo- and they'll say things like God loves the sinner and, and hates the sin. How many of you heard that? Can anybody attach a Bible verse to that? See, it's kind of an interesting thing. We, we kind of hear things, believe things, but where's the Bible verse on that? God hates sin, therefore the sinner's got to be what? Punished. Or something, someone has to take that punishment. Do you understand? So love and justice idea. God can't violate his character. That's the idea. God can't go against who he is. So if we say God is love and will save all men, we have a problem with that. Okay? Because God demands justice, and I think I can find enough verses on justice to prove that. How about uh, going over to Hebrews, a uh, few pages, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. I think I'm going to have to stop saying that soon, right? Go a few pages, it's go, you know, just click on it, or whatever. Hebrews 6.18, I still can't get used to the Bible on tablet or phone or something like that. Unless I'm just reading, then it's fine. I have paper issues. I gotta, I gotta feel this and hear this noise. Matthew six, uh, Matthew, Hebrews six eighteen. I, you know, I got Matthew on my brain, so six eighteen says this: In order that by two ch- unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, so it is impossible for God to lie. So when God makes a promise, He's got to do what? You know, I, I, I am a. I think I'm a really great father. I'm waiting. <laughs> but I, <laughs> that's a lot of pressure on you. But I have made promises I have not kept. You know why? Because I'm a bad guy, right? No. What happens? You make a promise. Things happen in life because you can't control all the events of life and time. Or you have one of those things you plumb forgot. Okay? God can't do any of those things. God controls all of time. So if you look at all the promises God has made, um, I even wrote in Romans, God is the only promise keeper. His promises to keep, promises to keep miles to go before he sleeps. I think that's Robert Frost, right? A little bit of twisting of Robert Frost. I'm allowed to do that because it's not biblical. So Robert Frost is cool. Um, but if you look at this, if you talk about God's plan, God's plan is in line with his character and depends on his character. If he can't change and he cannot lie, 
He's got to keep what he says. And he's got to keep it, not in an allegorical sense, so you can make it say what you wanted to say. He's got, it's got to be kept in the manner he, ex, he expressed it. Okay? So for, if you look at the Abrahamic covenant, not fulfilled yet. Now partially we can look at it and say, oh, there's vignettes of it filled. But it's all a package. So if Israel doesn't have the land, the covenant's not fulfilled. Okay? Davidic covenant, do we have a king uh, of, uh, in David's line sitting on the throne in Israel? Not that I last checked. They don't even know what tribes are there. But God, again, is a planner who cannot lie. He'll get it done the way he needs to get it done. Uh, First of all, and secondly, as we look at this, he tells the truth always. And as he tells the truth, it's always to your best interest. You know, I'm going to say something, and it's biblical. Truth hurts. Truth hurts, right? I think that's what, John 8, 34, somewhere in there? Uh, truth hurts, but it is truth, and I think it's a, a good idea because God gets to the, the heart of the man by having a perfect plan for, what did we say, all and for individual, and God will carry them out, and if he cannot lie and he cannot change, um, it's an interesting factor because that's God's got to keep that. Go back a few pages to, to Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1. I think all the hot air from the heaters are staying right up there. So if you want to get warm, some of you, you got to go up to the booth where Ben is. Ben's got a couple of chairs up there you can use. You're a little roasted up there, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Ben's going, I'm dying up here. <laughs> you got to know the difference. It could be 65 up there. It's 97 up there, I think. So, Because that's where the return is. Going right through Ben, frying his eyebrows. Verse 2, Titus 1, 2. In hope of eternal life, which, which God, who cannot lie, promised long, uh, long, uh, ages long ago, basically, or long ages ago. So we have a promise that God has given us eternal life. Uh, and I believe that began for all of us at salvation. But the extent of it is still a promised idea. So God cannot, and, he did, and notice what it says, though. Um, I think, again... The idea here of long, uh, long ages ago is basically before the world. Before, what happened before the world was in existence? What did God do before he created? Was creation God's plan B, C, D? Was the cross God's plan F and E kind of thing? What's, what are, no, all this was planned before God even created. And I know that's hard for us to understand, but that's uh, really good. Um, I go, go to Acts. I think this is an important one, too especially in today's uh, politically correct environment. I don't know how people that don't have countries that have freedom of speech actually teach the God, teach the Bible, teach the gospel, because you got to say so many things before you get, you'll be arrested for everything I said this morning, probably. Uh, this, is even, this is probably the worst of them all. Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12. It says, and, and I'm going to try and be succinct as possible, it says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 
There's only one way of salvation. It's through Jesus Christ. Period. That's, and if God cannot lie, therefore he cannot save apart from Jesus Christ. So if somebody says, oh, I got saved, but I don't know anything about Jesus, and I'm going to heaven, but I don't care what Christ has done for me. No, you're not. No, you're not. There is no plan of eternal life in Buddhism or in Islam, and we can go on and on, and, and in Christian cults, because they, they believe that there's salvation maybe in Christ, but you've got to do some good works too to help Christ out. That's, not, that, that's your name. That's saying in this verse, you have to add your name. Do you understand that? The duality there is not. There's one person through which salvation came to all of mankind, and that's the only way to get it. You can't add your name there. You can't help Christ out. And the thought of that is almost comical. That you can help Christ out in your salvation. And, and if you want to, uh, kind of write this down this year. Write down all the good you do. Just write down all the good you do. Whatever it might be, write it down. Take a listing of it. And you say, if that, that was, was that enough to help Christ out with his cross? Was that enough to get me closer to heaven? Because we're not even writing down what? The other list would be what? The sins you do, right? And right there, you're eliminated. But we're just going to say, let's write the good down, because I'm going to help God out, because I'm good. And it's funny, because Jesus said, why do you call me good? No man is good. Right? <laughs> Go figure that out. Um, so, when we talk about God's plan then, God's plan, therefore, since God is who he is, and he has to line up to his character, uh, and, and we don't think God... Well, let's do it this way. When we talk about God's plan, it's outside of human thinking. Uh, we couldn't think up God's plan in this manner. We couldn't come up with God's way of dealing with man. We couldn't do that. So when you come to Bible study, here's a really good thing to look at. When you go into Bible study, you want to think God's thoughts after him, not saying, how does it align with my thinking? Your thinking is what? Irrelevant. Your thinking should be developing and growing as, a, as you mature in Christ, Christian life to think God's thoughts after him so you could look at things through God's word. But once you don't, you're thinking man's thoughts. It doesn't, doesn't, I don't care what you do, and you want to have enough of that, watch TV, you'll get secular and human viewpoint all day long kind of idea. Um, and, and think about it. How many times have you guys planned something individually and you come up with plan what? A, B, C, F. How many of you gone through the alphabet yet? You know, I mean, because some of us say there's, these are the things I'd like to see happen. And sometimes a plan what? You say, oh, that's great. The plan came together. And you look at it, you're all excited because everything came together and worked out exactly as you were thinking it should work. Instead of saying, thank God it did because God was helping work this out. Um, we say, look, we worked it out. But most of the times, uh, we can't say that we worked anything out. Uh, and we change our plans often. Some of you change your plans, you know, moment by moment. It just happens. Um, and we will, as people, say we've got to get certain things done on Tuesday. I've got a list of things to do. On Thursday, I've got a list of things to do. And what happens? God rains on your parade, right? It slows you down, or the car breaks down, or the kids got the flu, kind of thing. And he's like, oh, I thought everything was going just as planned. Okay? Uh, think about this. Adam, uh, God created Adam and Eve. Okay? On the sixth day, God created man and woman, and on the sixth day, and on the, I believe, on the eighth day, things fell apart. 
Okay, I don't care what day afterwards it fell apart. God didn't all of a sudden say, "Oh, didn't expect that." Now I got to, you know, I didn't expect the temptation of Eve to happen and her being deceived and Adam taking the fruit. Um, uh, therefore, now I got to fix that. And how am I going to fix that? Well, uh, Genesis 3:15. I'm going to bring apart a seed of the woman, so the seed of the woman could go to the cross. It, that's not an afterthought. Christ's death on the cross was never an afterthought, uh, and um, God doesn't. God does. Well, let's put it this way: in terms of God, not a man. God does c- control time, elements, circumstances, and other people. So His plan lines up. Put your plan there and say, "Can I control time?" Nah, I don't think you can. Most of us aren't even really good with controlling time. How about the elements or the environment? around us how do we control those things we can't how about circumstances you know we always say well you don't know what i'm going through well that's true but you can't control it either can you how about other people because i know most of you all have op problems right other people problems it's not my problem but you don't know my and fill in the blank okay because uh, we can't control it but god does so when we make plans it involves all these different factors uh so a principle that come out of this is God is both truthful and unsurprisable. God has God keeps the truth when he gives out his plan, and nothing within that plan has a surprise factor to him. I don't know how many of you ever woke, woke up or been at whatever. You've gone to God in prayer and you say, God, by the way, I want to give you some information you may not have. I don't know if any of us pray like that, but she say, Lord, do you know what's going on in my life? If you would know, you would what? Take control. It would all be perfect, and I wouldn't have to go through these, but you must not be in control. You must not know what's going on. So we're like informers that we're going to tell God some inside information God has no clue about. Please don't do that. God's not surprised. Um, and I think sometimes we think whatever's going on in our lives we're the only one having these problems, or the only one that's been ever been through this, or it seems like we're on a, uh, a mountain alone, but you're not. First uh, Corinthians tells us that if you have something you've gone through and you've been comforted, what God has given to you, go find somebody else to comfort. Because why? The first thing the Bible realizes is other people have gone through what you've gone through. The only people that say you can't, have, you know, was Adam and Eve, basically. You know, they didn't know what was going on. Um, uh, I was thinking of something the other day that's on that trek a little bit. Um, can you imagine if Cain went before the court of law today and the court would say, Cain, why, how, how, what were the circumstances of you killing your brother? Why would you do that? Oh, you don't know how angry he, he made me. Um, and, it, uh, and the issues that followed, and he's given all these excuses. What was God's one thing he said to Cain? One thing he said to Cain, and I think we miss this sometimes, it wasn't saying, Cain, get rid of the gun, right? Because gun control wasn't needed for Cain, right? But he still killed his brother. Why? Because sin was crouching at the door. And God said, deal with your sin. And Cain did what? He let it escalate. And, And his only target was Abel, right? Where did he come up with that? Man's plan. Cain thought that was a really good plan. God was telling him, no, Cain, that's not a good plan. Don't do that. I know what's on your heart. Don't do that. Uh, third point that has to do with God's plan. In God's plan, God does not suppress our volition, nor does God coerce man's will. And I, I think this is important. 
Because when we see certain people of certain uh, theological persuasions, they either say we don't have a free will or somehow God forces his will upon us. Uh, Truth allows for man to have a will that may correspond with God's divine plan and may not. Error says God is passive toward bad choices. That means God sits around and lets you make bad choices and will never deal with it. God never, But God never sits around allowing man to choose and never takes an action. God does take action on man's choices. They may not be immediate and they may not be as aggressive as you think. But God does make, make, uh, take an action toward that. Uh, for instance, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Was his choices good or bad? Yet before, before Moses even goes, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Why does he say that? Because he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart first and foremost, or he knows that Pharaoh's going to make some what? Really bad choices. And uh, God encouraged Pharaoh. I don't know if he realizes God encouraged Pharaoh to make good choices. You know how he did that? He didn't send one plague. God could have sent one plague. He could have said, hey, Moses, I'm done. Paint your houses with the blood, and I'm coming. We're going to have Pesach a few weeks early. Passover's coming real bef- real, way before you think it is, because we're just going to get rid of Pharaoh, because I know Pharaoh is not going to make good choices. He's going to, the first thing he's going to present, he's going to harden his heart. God gave him ten times. Now, I don't know how many times he, get, he gives most of us, but God says, make a good choice. Make, or we would say, make a godly choice. How did Pharaoh do? Every time he failed. And the second the judgment came, he said, Oh, don't, don't get rid of it. I can't handle this. And God said, Okay, you're right. I will. I'll take it away. And, only, and he knew God was in control. You, know, you realize that as you read through the Exodus account, Pharaoh knew God was in control. But he was the God of Egypt. Over all the other gods of Egypt, he was the God. And he, saying, he was saying, my will is stronger than your will. And a strong-willed child, uh, at some point, pays for it, kind of idea. So, so when we talk about the, the divine plan for mankind, where God makes choices without consultation, he allows man to choose. And when man chooses to obey, he blesses. And when man chooses, sins, God deals with him in time. All this is done because God's love, all the whole time, uh, the whole while, God being incapable of making bad choices, and God still having all of his characteristics involved. So, um, keep this sequence in mind as we look at God's plan. First of all, God is supreme person of the universe. He has a plan. So God is supreme. He is the sovereign God of the universe, and he has a plan. He has made certain choices within that plan. He's given us his word, divine revelation, so we can understand that plan. So God is sovereign. He's given a plan to us in his divine revelation and given us a, a series of choices he makes whereby we can cooperate with his plan. We can say, good plan, God. I'm going to follow it. And when God says certain things, we do them because we want to what? Submit to the sovereignty of God to show God we care about his plan and that his plan is best for us. Or we can rebel. Those are the two choices we have. Um, so let me go. Let me run through some choices real quick of God making choices without man's consultation. Now, I'm going to explain something before that. All of his choices had nothing to do 
with, with um, salvation. These were not determiners of who God saved. It's how God was selecting pers- people for certain things. Okay, So I'm just going to give you the references, and you can look them up when you want to. I just Most of you are familiar with most of these. So in Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, Adam has two sons. Well, the whole chapter. Let's talk about the whole. He has three sons named. I do not believe Adam had only three sons. Okay? And I don't believe Adam had no daughters. Because it does say later Adam had sons and daughters. Okay? How many? I don't know. Let your mind wander. Eve was um, created like a couple minutes after Adam was. Let's say... God gave them some ability to have some age. They weren't created as infants. They were created probably 30 years old. I don't know. I'm just guessing. But my Bible says Adam lived 930 years. 930 years. How long were their productivity between Adam and Eve? I have no clue. How many kids could they possibly have had? You do the multiplication. Okay? Um, And you say, poor Eve... Okay, I don't know what else to do with that other than say, you're right. Um, there are records where people, uh, I think in the book of Judges, um, that they had 70 sons only, and but they had, a, they had to have daughters too. So think of one person having, by the time, the, wasn't it Judges or was it Kings? I don't remember. 70 sons, you go, my goodness. The guy who had his own what? Everybody always says, you know, Eric, if you have a few more grandsons, you have your own baseball team. That's the stupidest thing. But 70 sons, what do you have there? You have your own militia. Okay? Uh, and that's what worked out with them. But the idea is, Adam had three sons that are named in the Bible in chapter 4 of Genesis. Which one of the sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth, did, Adam, did God choose to have his pl- plan run through? Shem. I mean, Seth. Excuse me, Seth. <laughs> Mo, Larry, and Curly. Something's going on here. Uh, okay, so in Genesis 4... Seth is the one he runs the plan through. God chose that, elected, whatever word you want to use, to have his plan, and I like the word selection more, because God said, I'm selecting you for the plan to go through. Was Abel saved? More than likely. Was Cain saved? Nothing in the Bible says anything about it. Right? We're just assuming, because Abel's sacrifice was a preacher, but we don't know what Cain did afterwards. I'm going to assume he didn't, he rebelled, but I don't know. There's no record because God says that's philosophy. Who cares? We'll move on. We don't even know how, where he got his wife from other than the 900 years of Adam and Eve. Okay, And I'm, that's pretty sure where he got him from. The wife, poor wife, uh, in that case. Um, so God next in Genesis 6.10, Noah has three sons. Uh, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Right? Three sons. Uh which one did he choose to run the line through that he needed? Shem. That's why they're called Shemites. Or we later call them Semites. But it's Shemites. So God chose again to run his plan through the family of Shem. Then, which, which I always find funny, God loves the word, the threes. Because we have three sons in Genesis 4, three sons in Genesis 6. In Genesis 11, Terah has three sons. He has Abram. And everybody knows about Abraham, but he also had Haran, and he also had Nahor. Nahor was the father of Lot. So he has three sons. Out of which of these sons did he call out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to run his plan through? Abram, were the other ones saved or not saved? I have no clue. We're not talking. These are not 
Salvitic verses that are talking about the plan of God running through the people he's chosen. And sometimes we'll look at some of the people he chose, as, as we'll go through the next ones, and say, wow, what a bad choice. But God used it for a specific purpose to run his plan. Right? That's the, um, one of the things I used to say, well, let's just do the next one. I'll go back to what I used to say. Then we have Genesis, the running of Genesis, probably from 12 on. We have uh, Abraham uh, having a, having what? Abraham had what son? First. Ishmael, right? He had Ishmael. Did God choose him? No. Then Abraham, well, even before that, Abraham was kind of confused. Should Eleazar be the one to run his uh, line through? And God said, no, I still have a plan for you in Genesis 15. So at that point, Ishmael, when Ishmael came, he said, no, that's got to be it. But no, Ishmael, and Ishmael had 12 sons who God did bless. Were they saved? Ready for this? No clue. Have no clue. Um, there is some biblical hint that say maybe they were. But it's not the idea. The idea is he ran it through Isaac, and in Isaac, the plan would come through. And later, he had sons with Keturah in Genesis 25. So Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham that were not chosen for a specific purpose, but God chose one. Then Isaac has what? How many sons? He even has a better deal. He has twins that came out almost like a package. Okay? And one was grabbing the heel of the other, right? And if you look at the lives of both Jacob and Esau, what would you say? I'm not choosing either one of these. Those both are buggers. I don't want nothing to do with these guys. They got issues. Uh, Esau was very earthy, and Isaac was very uh, motherly. He was lean to his mother, and he did say, and he lied, and he deceived, and, and he had. He always seemed like he was whining about something. Even in Scripture, you've got to get this hint of a wine coming out. Like, what is your issue? You know? Um, and, uh, and, and as we look at these two sons, God chose one. Okay? And then uh, and, and, and as he chose Jacob, um, Jacob, Jacob himself chose a son. Think about this. Jacob chooses a son. Who's Jacob's choice son? Joseph. God says, I love your choice. Good guy. Uh, we probably, if you went through Scripture, all of Scripture, you'd never find Joseph ever sinned. God doesn't give us a sin of Joseph. As a matter of fact, he's, he's been, always been an example of how you run from sin, right? Everybody always says, how, how do you flee immorality? Do a Joseph. What did Joseph do? He, he said, feet don't fail me now. <laughs> Get out of town. Okay? So we always use Joseph as a great example. But God says, Joseph's your pick, but my, that's not mine. Mine's Judah. Wait a second. Judah? The guy in chapter 38 that we need to just skip over? We don't want to go, because everybody gets crazy with Genesis 38, because why? That's a crazy chapter. If I was God, I would have just left that information out. You're having problems with your daughter-in-law, who you promised sons to, and, it said, and basically she's like the black widow. Uh, so Abram, Abram doesn't, I mean Abram, um, Judah doesn't want to deal with that. And finally Judah ends up having a, a one night stand and he has a child through his daughter-in-law and we all go, Ew. that's like, that's our rated Bible. So let's not, let's skip that. That's who God chose. What's, what's with that? Because God had a choice. Why? Because he wanted to run the kings through Judah. That's all. That's all we can come up with. We can't say, well, Judah was great. He represented what a kingly line should be. 
what? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, even though his later son, David, would have some physical issues with women, uh, many women. We just pick on Bathsheba, but I don't think that was his only issue. So we see all this choosing that goes on. Uh, later, let's talk about that. Israel chose Saul. They wanted a king like everybody else, and God said, here's your wish. <laughs> you wish for it. You wanted a king like everybody else had. We'll give you that king. And God gave him a king like everybody else had, but that was not God's choice. God's choice was David. So as we see this, uh, and we look at what kind of choices God makes and why God makes those choices, um, I think what we need to do more than anything is not say, why does God make those choices? I think we, first of all, when we're doing Bible study, identify God's choices for the purpose he has. So if you're doing Bible study, why did God choose this? What was the reason, his reasoning behind that, and identify that? Well, first identify it. And then submit to the idea God can't make choices. But every choice I've ever seen God make is not for salvation. That's man's responsibility to respond to the gospel and to Christ, whether before time or after time. So if you say, well, how were people saved in the Old Testament? They had faith in God, that God would provide for them certain things. And they believed God. And God knew God would extend grace. Did they believe that Christ died on the cross for them? That would be silly, wouldn't it? Because why? In the Old Testament, Christ hadn't done that. So, but yet it does say they had certain information. So let me, call, let me talk about two dangers real quick and we'll wrap it up. First of all, uh, when we talk about uh, psychology, psychology is a danger uh, because psychology doesn't always admit to a sin nature. Psychology doesn't say man has a sin nature. I don't know of any psychologists that will do that. Sit in my office and I'll take, take out the Bible and say you have a sin nature. Um, uh, and within that, psychology never shows that God's absolute, uh, God's absolute will is absolute good. We never see in psychology where they refer to this is God's will and God's will is absolute and God's will is good for you. Uh, secondly, so psycholo psychology and the other P would be passivity, uh, where I don't make any choices. God makes them all. I'm waiting for a sign from heaven to come down to say what, what should I decide. So I'm going to go buy this, this car and I'm looking for something supernatural to happen to the car. Well, uh, when my dad bought a Corvair years ago, I don't think that was supernatural. It was 75 bucks and it, we could get it kind of thing. Uh, if he had it today, probably were, I don't know what those things are worth, if they're worth anything, but... Uh, they weren't m worth much back then. Really, 25 grand? I just part of me just rolled over. Uh, <laughs> but I remember that little thing with, the, with that we actually put a rock in the front of it so that we could carry people because otherwise the car would get the front end would go off the ground because the engine was too heavy. So, um, so if if you're you're looking at God psychologically or you're looking at God passively, uh, you have You'll have issues that lead to indecisiveness, and um, and I think not only indecisiveness, but I also believe this is a sign of immaturity. When you're looking for things to miraculously happen, and I think a lot of the charismatic movement and those things today uh, expect God to be a divine deliverer, like the Amazon God. You ask for it, and God brings a box with a smile on your doorstep, and he, he gives you with things, because you can't make a decision. Uh, um I'm going to give you an equivalent. 
I don't think a parent today should ask a kid, what, a, a child, what he wants to eat, right? Because what's a kid going to say when he wants? You say, what do you want to eat, little Johnny? Fruit Loops. And you say, well, that's a good decision. You're getting Fruit Loops. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you get Fruit Loops. Now, what kind of parents would give their kid Fruit Loops all the time? Well, there are Fruit Loop parents. I don't know if that's a new title of things, but there are Fruit Loop parents because they haven't taught the child, understood the child has total immaturity to choose what is good for them. So they put down food that is right for them, and what's the kid going to do? Not want to eat. And parents aren't saying, don't eat, starve. I've never heard of any child that's ever starved for, by missing a meal, but I have learned that kids will what? Choose to follow what the parents see because they're going to get what? Hungry. And you could put the meal in the refrigerator and nuke it. And if little Johnny doesn't want to eat it again, you could put it in the refrigerator and nuke it. Don't give him, don't let him make choices. He's immature. Now, once in a while, you could say, what do you want? Do you want pancakes or eggs? You're allowing them to choose within what? A paradigm. Is they make pancakes? No, I don't want those. I want something else. Starve. My, I love that word, Starve. Now, I don't say to them, well, kids in Africa, you know, if kids in Africa knew what you were eating today, they would love it. No, starve! Because what you're doing is teaching a child, they are immature to make sound decisions. You can make the soundest decisions because you're an adult. Look at God. Who makes sound decisions? God does. And if, and if we can't line up with what God has, we're immature. Make a choice. You say, well, what if I'm wrong? You're wrong! How many of you have always made perfect choices? i, I got to line up with this guy. This, Ron's good. Perfect. But most of us can say, boy, I don't believe I chose that. That wasn't a really good path. But what did I learn by making that choice? What was achieved by making that choice? Um, so, um, and I think maturity in the Word bling, brings us to a place that we can be decisive. So, don't take this wrong. If you're not decisive on certain things, or there's issues, and you write the pros and cons. Uh, you may be dealing with a spiritual immaturity issue, but okay, at least you recognize it. And then God will help you grow so you'll be more decisive. And, I don't, and don't be afraid of making a bad choice unless it's an ungodly choice. Don't do that. You know, I've, I've known people that have gone certain places, and they said, I'm going to move here because it's really nice, but they're making a choice to what? What church are you going to go to? Why are you going to go there? Well, I'm making more money. Well, is money the determining factor or a place you can worship and grow in? Kind of get what I'm saying? And, and I say, well, that's, that's an immature choice and you'll pay for it, but prayerfully you grow in that choice. And people will disagree with me when I say, you've got to go to a place to worship. You know, People ask me why I moved here. Because I found a place I go worship in. Well, you're the pastor. Okay. What does that have to do with it? This is a place I want to be, and God called me, and the first determining factor was, this, is this going to be a place that will teach God's Word? Kind of got what I'm saying. And, they were, and they, this church has always had that pattern, that they were teaching God's Word. And I think that's great. So let's pray. So we can go get some fuel in us and some coffee, and we'll come back here in about 20 minutes and pick up with our next session. Father, we thank you for this time. A lot of information we've kind of discussed, but the number one thing we have to remember is you are God. You are sovereign. You've given us your revealed word. We need to spend time in, in it, studying it, understanding your plan as it unfolded uh, throughout history, Father. 
And today we're waiting for the culmination of your plan as we see signs and events that are, that are carrying out and getting it uh, ready for the end times, Father. Uh, I thank you again for your wonderful words, your, your encouragement that you've given us in your, in your word. Father, help us to be people that take time to, to study it, to take time to know the nuances within it, to, to reflect often on your plan. In Jesus' name, amen.